When's the last time you were able to network with your peers in the healthcare industry? Well, now is your chance. Join us this April with over a thousand executives at Becker's 13th annual meeting to hear C-suite discussions around consumerism, the nursing workforce, value-based care, and a lot more. You can register using the link in the description. We hope to see you there. This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dennis Mathis, President and CEO of Centera Healthcare. Centera is a nonprofit health system with 12 hospitals in Virginia and North Carolina, as well as a health plan that serves 1.2 million members in Virginia and Florida. Dennis, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Lauren. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I know we have a lot to talk about. There's so much happening in healthcare right now, and really a lot of things that Centera is doing that I wanted to pick your brain on. But before we dive into my questions, can you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background? Sure. So, um... I've been with Sintera for five years, but I'll jump back a little bit. I'm actually a CPA by training, so spent um, six years with what's now um, PricewaterhouseCoopers and Deloitte and & Touche, and then um, jumped into my healthcare career, and I've been in healthcare for nigh on 30 years now, and so I've spent time both on the on the payer and care delivery side of of healthcare, so I started my career at Humana, and um, was in in the field in the Kansas City and in the Chicago health plans of Humana. So the um, Old Prime Health Plan in Kansas City and the Michael Reese Health Plan in Chicago. And while there, I actually managed the staff models. The Michael Reese Plan was a very large staff model operation at the time I was there, and so I managed both a very large set of physician practices as well as um, sales and contracting in other areas um, for the health plan in Chicago. And then actually had an opportunity to build a health plan from scratch for the BJC Health System and Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. And so had an incredible learning experience there. And again, being able to work directly with um, the provider side of the business. And then from there, um, was at Cigna Healthcare and was a regional president for Cigna Healthcare based in Chicago again. And so my second tour of duty in Chicago. And, and then from there, was at Advocate in Chicago, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's a very large health system, now even bigger given the, the recent transaction um, and merger that Advocate did. And, and so had an opportunity to again work on the provider side of the house and then spent 14 years with Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield in a number of roles. My last two roles was were as a regional president, so I ran a six-state market for Anthem in the Midwest. It was at the time about a $12 billion revenue enterprise. Um, and then my last role at Anthem was actually um, helping lead the integration effort for the Cigna transaction, which that ultimately was blocked by the government, and then um, I landed a, a role at Centera and um, have been the president of the, the health plan here at Centera, Optima Health, for roughly the past five years, and then six months ago um, was named the CEO for the health system. 
Oh, that's fascinating. And, you know, really to think through all the different experiences you've had with the healthcare system, and especially your perspective coming from the health plan side, how does that help you in your role now as president and CEO, considering especially the landscape and how health system and healthcare providers are relating to the health plans and payers and some of the changes going on there? What perspective do you have that's kind of unique because of that history you've had uh, throughout your career? So it's, um, it's a great question, and I, and I think, uh, Laura, the, the for me, it's one having spent time both on the on the payer and provider side of healthcare. I, I, I do believe I have a, a a unique perspective in terms of how to to marry both the financing of healthcare with the delivery of healthcare, and what it takes to. Um, actually leverage both of those assets in a way that's going to translate into um, better outcomes for for our patients and our members as we move forward. I think the notion of, you you know, we've talked a lot about the, the shift to pay for value um, from pay for volume. You know, I certainly am a big believer in that, and I think um, we as an organization and as, an, as a healthcare system need to continue to move down that path, and I, I certainly carry the perspective both from the employer market as well as, again, on the care delivery side from physicians and hospitals. That's great to hear, and, you know, I, I know there's a lot going on in healthcare right now, so what are some of the biggest issues that you're following today? Yeah, there's a bunch, right? And um, a couple things I, w- I would, I guess, say is the um, you know in in the near term certainly the headwinds that our industry is facing with regard to uh, labor costs and supply costs and inflationary pressures um, that we are dealing with um, certainly are 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 top of mind but and you know underneath that the labor implications around the the staffing shortages that we have in a number of of critical areas in healthcare are certainly um, front of mind and things that we are focused on as an organization. And then beyond that, I think the the notion of the behavioral health crisis that we have and the things that we need to be investing in to help address um, what's going on with regard to behavioral health. And and then that, just to, to round out a couple other opportunities on that on the labor front as well as the workplace violence, you guys have certainly published a fair amount of articles on the topic of late, and that's something that I'm very focused on as I've heard loud and clear from our team members at Sentara over the over my time um, in becoming CEO with regard to their concerns for safety, and so the things that we can do to create a more safe environment for our team members as well as for our patients and visitors is uh, certainly top of mind for us. And then uh, closer to home in terms of just for for Sentara, um, we're a very big provider of Medicaid services to the Commonwealth of Virginia. And so Sentara this year is roughly going to be a $12 billion Revenue enterprise, and fully 7.4 billion of that 12 is dedicated to um, the managed Medicaid program here 
in Virginia. So the bulk of that is in our managed care contract that we have with the Commonwealth of Virginia. We we are the we cover more Medicaid eligibles in the state of Virginia than any other payer does, but then also the provider side of our business and the services that we provide to Medicaid beneficiaries. And so we're getting ready to go through a re-procurement with um, the Commonwealth of Virginia and dealing with the the impacts um, that are going to play out given the um, redetermination process that's going to go on in the Medicaid program nationally. And so those combination of those issues are, 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 are big deals for Sentara going into 2023 in terms of the, the implications in terms of our communities and for us as, a, as an ongoing business entity as well. That's really interesting to hear about. And a lot of those issues come together when thinking through looking at, you know, the employees and employer challenges, workforce challenges, and then to behavioral health in the Medicaid coverage, um, all of those things I know must be front of mind um, for a lot of organizations today. So, you know, when you look at your resources and very, I, I know every healthcare dollar is precious regardless of the situation, but, you know, when when you're thinking through what can I do to really make sure that every dollar I spend is going to a space that is helping to improve the community and improve the organization and the teams that are really caring for your communities, um, how do you make those decisions? How do you really uh, invest within um, the community? And if you could tell us a little bit about maybe initiative that you're really proud of or something that, you know, you really think has brought a lot of value and was worth, you know, investing in and putting resources towards. Sure. So I am, I, um, I'm going to split your question into a couple of components because it's a really, it's a really good meaty question. So I think the, um, first I'll talk about just the um, human capital component that, that you raised, uh, Laura. The, and so we're, one of the things we're going through right now at Sentara is a strategic refresh. And, and part of that is really taking a longer-term view on human capital, how we um, best manage scarce resources for this organization and for our community, communities that we serve um, as we move forward. And so a couple things are, are going on there. One, you know, in the near term, um, in 2022, we actually, you know, provided some fairly significant pay increases and benefit enhancements um, to the tune of $110 million in pay increases and $15 million in, in benefit enhancements. And that was really with a, a need to stabilize our, our, our workforce and you know, just recognize the overall inflationary pressure that our team members are feeling in their day-to-day -day lives. Longer term, tied to that, we're we're going to have to start to reimagine how we deliver care as an organization. And so we're we're focused on a couple of things. Um, one, trying to go back to a a team model in our care delivery at at the bedside in our hospitals. And so repatriating um, LPNs and two-year nurses into a team concept. We've run, we're running several pilots in that area right now to reassure ourselves that we can maintain the high quality that we're known for, 
um, while at the same time trying to, again, stretch um, limited ESN resources that we have in our organization. I also tied to that is a notion of getting to top a license across the care continuum um, for our team members. And so that, you know, just, I know you know these stats, but I'll, I'll say them anyway. You know, we're, we're basically predicting a nationally a half million nurse shortage um, through, throughout this decade. And the most troubling stat there is during COVID, we lost 120,000 nurses, most of them younger in their career. They weren't necessarily due to retirements, but more so um, nurses actively deciding to either leave the bedside or leave um, nursing as a career altogether. That's, those are significant concerns for us as an industry. And then similar numbers in terms of the gap that it's being created is on the physician side, where we think we'll have 125,000 physician shortage nationally by the end of this decade. And so the notion of getting our nurses and physicians to practice at the top of their license is going to be more and more critical to us and to the healthcare system as a whole. And so, you know, one, it's how do we offload non-essential clinical care items from our clinicians, whether they be nurses or physicians or other allied health professionals. Secondly, you know, really starting to look at the the use of electronic medical records has opened up so many opportunities for the advancement uh, of quality in healthcare, but the, the time it is consuming of our clinical professionals to document in these systems has really become just too much. And so evaluating ways that we can still capture the data we need to continue to advance the quality agenda that we all have but at the same time reducing the administrative burden for our physicians, which on average, uh, I think uh, a doctor would say they're spending two hours a day documenting um, in their charts and in the medical records. If we can free up a half an hour, an hour of that time, that's over the course of a year, that's either giving back personal time to clinicians or allowing them to actually have more patient contact um, instead of that. And so those are things that we're certainly going to be focused on in the coming months and years as, as part of this work. And then finally with that is to really how do we help work with um, the educational community to beef up programs to get more clinicians into the marketplace in the coming years. That's not going to happen overnight, but work that has to be done. And then tied to that is how do we generate more excitement um, in younger people about healthcare careers. And so spending time actually at the high school level, we've got some pilots going on um, with regard to how do we start to stimulate younger people thinking about careers in healthcare because it's not enough. You've got to create the capacity in our, in our teaching institutions, but then you also have to create the demand um, from the students um, to want to explore those type of careers as we move forward. And so all those things are, I think, you know, no one thing is going to solve the issue, but all of those together, we think we can meaningfully move the needle on supply and especially force and terror to actually generate um, the staffing that we're going to know we need um, in the coming years. 
That's such a fascinating idea and really is so helpful to think through. I know it's long-term, but getting people more involved and engaged in healthcare careers, it, it just seems like a really exciting opportunity and way to bring the community together. Now, what else is, are you excited about right now? And is there anything that's making you nervous? Sure. So you know, on, on the excitement side, um, a couple of things. So one, I, I talked about our um, commitment to the managed Medicaid program here, here in Virginia. We launched a year ago um, what we've, we've labeled Sentara Community Care. And so it's actually um, leveraging both the care delivery and care financing sides of our organization um, to identify um, areas where there are, are undermet needs in terms of health care, and, and we've started to deploy um, community clinics um, in these locations. And some are fixed bricks-and-mortar sites. Others are, are being solved through uh, mobile vans. But it, it really is a, a collaboration of both sides of our organization. So looking at both the know, identifying where we were seeing just high emergency room utilization from certain neighborhoods and areas and communities around the Commonwealth and asking and basically saying, all right, where are we meeting, missing an opportunity to provide primary care services in geographies that are then resulting in people using the EDs as their primary care source? And, and then... Secondly, actually looking at it from a different lens, if you, you know, the reason some of these geographies um, don't have adequate access to primary care is because they're financially, um, from a purely provider lens, they couldn't make the math work in terms of supporting um, on-site clinics, whether mobile or, or fixed. If you put a lens, though, of a managed care manage Medicaid perspective and say, okay, you can now eliminate unnecessary ED volumes and you can use those savings in the risk dollars that you're being paid to manage a population, that then starts to create the funding mechanism to actually build out these sites and support that with both um, um, medical as well, well as behavioral health resources. And so it, I'm really proud of you know, the journey that we've started down this path, and it really is leveraging all the facets of our organization in terms of bringing it to bear um, to solve some community need issues. And, and so that, which ties directly into where our new framing for our strategic, our new strategic plan is called One Centera, and it really is about leveraging both the healthcare financing, healthcare delivery components of our organization in a way that we've not done in the past. And it's in service to taking care of the consumer. And so creating a, a better, more simplified experience for the end user with regard to how do they access and finance their healthcare needs. And so that's going to be a multi-year journey for us of which these um, community care sites are a part of, but I, I'm really excited about the potential um, when, we, when we leverage and harness, you know, all the great resources of this organization in, in a way that we've not done um, in the past. 
That really, you know, is great to hear and definitely is exciting to think about and think through how healthcare is changing and really making a difference for improved accessibility as well as, you know, making sure that people are able to uh, pay for the care that they need or get the care that they need in a way that, you know, they weren't able to in the past. Now, as we've talked through, healthcare is changing a lot, whether it's thinking about the workforce shortages or um, other issues with health plans and health coverage and access to care and really what we've been through over the past couple of years during the pandemic too. So from your perspective, what will the most effective healthcare leaders need in order to be successful over the next two to three years or so? That's a great question and, and one that I spend a fair amount of time thinking about. And so I'm going to answer it in, in two ways. I think one, in terms of skill set and focus for our leaders at Centera in terms of driving success for the organization and for our communities. It's, you know, you have to have a, a consumer lens. And so whether you're in direct patient care or in, you're on the financing side of the organization, but making sure that we are, again, you know, meeting the needs and, and meeting our consumers, our patients, and our members on their terms and simplifying um, their healthcare journey. And so being able to connect the dots around um, our, our, our individual patients and consumers' healthcare journey um, and how we engage with them is going to be incredibly important. Secondly, um, I've mentioned this, but employee retention and development. And so again, um, working in a way that we're we want to be the place for talent to come especially clinical talent and making ourselves um, as attractive as we can and providing opportunities for people to have full careers um, with our organization and so career pathing is going to become a more and more important component in terms of our our employee retention and development in our workforce planning and that the having that skill set and those, those thoughts processes are going to be important. next um, mentioned this but thinking and being able to develop and deploy new models of care and so challenging ourselves again to how do we get our clinical teams to top a license how do we re-engineer ourselves in a way that allows us to make you know healthcare more affordable as well as more accessible um, to to all of the constituents communities that we serve. And then um, leveraging technology. And so um, having the ability to really think about how we lever technology in a way that's going to be in service to, you know, our four pillars, which is affordability, seamlessness, personal, and, and making healthcare more simple. And then the, there's a cultural aspect to this too, Laura. And so you know, one of the things that we're really starting to drive down is this notion of one decentralized decision making. So that that's an opportunity for us at Centera, but I think it's an opportunity broadly in healthcare as well. And so getting decision making down to more of our frontline team members that are interacting day to day with our patients and our members, and and empowering them to help drive the change towards our goal of becoming more consumer focused. And then also uh, digital thinking. And so that's the last important 
comment that I would make. And so it's not, um, you know, we it's not okay just to deploy technology, but to deploy it when you overlay it with existing processes. You really have to step back and 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 think digitally in terms of a digital experience and how do we make things again easier and more accessible especially for the non-baby boomer generations that are becoming bigger and bigger users of healthcare services they expect to interact in a different way from the boomer population and you know having a digital front door and back door for for those cohorts are going to be more and more important to us as a as a health system as we move. I love that. I think all those points really make a lot of sense and are definitely something that, you know, you see being so important for leaders to embody. And I'm particularly interested in, you know, when you talk about the culture changes and shifts in terms of decentralized decision making, was that an easy change to make or, or how are you really deploying that and making sure throughout the organization people are comfortable uh, making those decisions at the line of care as well as wherever they're at um, within the management administrative structure? Yeah, so that it, that's a great follow-up question. And, and so I will tell you, we're, we're on a journey with that. We have historically not embraced decentralized decision making as an organization and that there's a number of reasons for that right I mean some of it is cultural to our organization some of it is because in healthcare you want to make sure that you have quality processes in place and they're adhered to at the patient bedside and in our clinics and so when when I talk about this cultural change in, in decentralized decision making um, it's one, it starts with me, and so me providing the ability for my senior leaders to, to make decisions and then for them to push the appropriate level of decision-making down to their team members and so on. Some of that is about, and we're still in this process, of defining decision rights um, based on what you are as a leader and what you have responsibility for, and so it, it creates safety for our leaders, our middle-level leaders, to make decisions when they know we expect them to make these decisions and we have decision rights spelled out. So there's, there's as much art to science in that process, and that is still something that that we are in the evolutionary stages of doing at, at this point in time. And then I, I would also say that um, it's about encouraging people to make mistakes and to recognize, and not at, not at the bedside, not in the care delivery process, but from a business lens. And, and so, you know, I, to, to help foster that, I have, um, you know, I call them Dennis's three simple questions that I'm going to ask if somebody makes a, makes a decision that goes awry. And, you know, and the first question is, you know, tell me how you got to the decision that you made. And that's really you know, did you use logic to make the decision that you made and you, ha and you used the best fact base that you had? Secondly, you know, when did you recognize that the decision wasn't playing out the way that you had hoped it is? And so that's, again, did you actually monitor the impacts of your decision and stay on top of and, and tracking to the outcome that you were expecting to get and then recognized that um, it was not going on track? And then finally, were you able to clean up? after yourself and so the the notion of okay i i made a, a decision it's not going as i planned it to but 
I, of course, corrected and cleaned up after myself. And if you can answer those three questions adequately, then you're never going to have a problem from Dennis in terms of, you know, making informed decisions and then tracking them and course correcting as you need to. And I, you know, and I tell all the leaders that I engage with, my biggest learnings in my career were not from my successes, they were from my mistakes. And recognizing I had the ability to clean up after myself actually became very liberating for me and allowed me to open my aperture in terms of what decisions I may or may not make given a particular opportunity or problem. And so I want to help develop that for all of our leaders, but especially our younger leaders in the organization. That's fascinating. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really inspiring conversation, and I hope you're able to join us again soon. Well, thank you, and thank you. Um, you you've been a great interviewer, and so I really appreciate your time, too, Laura.